You're listening to Story Arc. Stories that flood your imagination with inspiration. Episode 3. Mysterious People in Mysterious Places. Hey everybody, my name is Chris Thompson. Welcome to Story Arc. If this is your first time listening, we want to say welcome and thank you for stopping by. The Story Arc podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at our website, blockpartypodcastnetwork.com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Story Arc Podcast, and also on Facebook. All of our links that we mention in the show are in the show notes. And now, let's get on to the show. I want to first start out this episode, as I did last episode, by saying another huge thank you to all of you architects and listeners out there. Once again, you have showered us with so much love that we don't even know what to do with it all or where to even begin. You all make this podcast worth doing, and it's because of you that we want to make it back here every two weeks with a new episode. Your support through social media has been astounding, and I cannot thank you enough. And even though I could go on rambling all day about you listeners, we have business to do. We are excited for you to hear the next two stories that we have coming your way this week. Both stories are from talented writers who love the horror-slash-thriller genre of literature. The first is about a young girl who is a part of an unfortunate meeting, which leads to her meeting someone straight from her worst nightmares. The second is a story about a woman who wakes up in a strange room under even more peculiar circumstances, wondering how she got where she is. When she tries to escape, well, you'll just have to wait and hear. I can't wait for you to hear this week's stories. If you like what you hear today and would like to possibly hear one of your own stories featured in the future, head on over to our website at blockpartypodcastnetwork.com. Use the story arc tab and find the submissions page, and the page will guide you the rest of the way from there. And now, without any further ado, prepare to be inspired by our first story. A Piece of Something by S. von Globitz. The candle is nearly burnt out as I finish scrubbing. Sitting back on my heels, I sigh. A strand of hair has escaped my cap and I tuck it back into place. I can hear his quiet breathing behind me in the crib. If I hadn't been the one cleaning up his accident, I would never imagine he was capable of such a tantrum. Such an angel while he's asleep, but I suppose all children are. A carriage draws near on the street and comes to a stop close by the house. Leaving the damp rags in the pail on the floor, I walk silently over to the window and draw back the curtain to see who has a guest so late in the evening. My curiosity grows when I see that it is my own lord. The carriage is hidden mostly in the shadows, but seems plain enough. Perhaps it is a regular cab. All I can tell of the man who steps down from it and into the orange glow of the street lamp is a dark cloak and a wide-brimmed hat. When he reaches the front door, I lose sight of him over the side of the house. I pick up the pail to carry it downstairs as I hear the rap on the front door. Gerud remains asleep, and will, I assume, through the remainder of the visit. Once asleep, he is impossible to wake up. I use the servant's staircase to the kitchen so as not to offend the guest with Gerud's mess. Nimri! 
My lord's call resonates down the hallway as I am dumping the soiled water in the alley behind the kitchen. Yes, my lord, I mutter in reply, doubtful that he'll hear me. As I make my way down the hall, I wipe my hands on my apron, then smooth it out, vainly hoping that this will make me look more presentable. Really, I'm sure I look like a complete mess from working all day. I round the corner into the foyer. The guest has his back turned to me as my lord helps him discard his cloak. I catch a glimpse of a rough, dark ponytail before I revert my eyes. For some unexplainable reason, I suddenly feel sick. My lord pushes the cloak into my line of vision and I take it obediently. A lack of eye contact is preferred with servants, but I curtsy just in case before hanging the cloak on the hook. I can't help noticing that the material is thick and rich. This guest must be someone important. My lord is ushering him into the parlor, volleying polite words of weather and travel conditions. Mid-sentence, he turns his head back toward me and demands wine, then closes the door. For the first time in a long time, my body refuses the order. I do not want to wait on this guest. I have not yet seen his face, and yet I know. Making my way down to the wine cellar is like walking through mud. My heart lurches when I think about entering the room with him. Shaking my head, I force myself to think of nothing but wine. And what of it? If I knew anything about wine, I would know to choose something other than the first bottle my hand comes to. But as it is, I know nothing. I wrap my fingers around the neck of the nearest bottle, praying that it doesn't slip from my weak and shaking grip and shatter on the stone floor. Finding myself out of the cellar, I lean my shoulder against the wall. What am I rushing for? I should have skimmed every bottle down there, pretending that I was searching for the perfect one. If I walk more slowly down the hall, that might make up for the few moments I spent in the cellar. Perhaps I should also fetch two goblets from the kitchen in case my lord has none in the parlor. No, I'm being silly. I grasped onto a feeling and I'm making it into something much bigger than it needs to be. The guest is a man, nothing more. Taking a deep breath, I resume my natural gait and select two silver goblets from the cabinet in the kitchen before making my way back to the parlor. I knock once, then wait to hear my lord's invitation before coming inside. Proud of how easily I turn the knob, I give a quick curtsy before approaching the fireplace. Their conversation withers to a mumble before they both fall silent. I can feel their attention on me and my pulse quickens again. I keep my eyes lowered, perfectly natural for a servant, I assure myself as I set the bottle and the goblets onto the small table between the two stiff armchairs my lord and his guests sit in. My lord takes the bottle the moment I set it down and uncorks it. The familiar but bitter smell tingles in my nose. I swallow before speaking. Will there be anything else, my lord? My lord finishes sipping his wine. The goblet clunks noisily as he sets it back down onto the table. Next to it, the guest's fingers run lazily up and down his own. Once again I feel the urge to vomit as I stand transfixed by his hand. Scars vine along his knobby fingers, and his nails are tinged in unhealthy brown. Be at hand! The command is swift, as always, more of an implication that I should stay in the room, out of the way, in case I'm needed. 
Of course, it is the last thing I had hoped he would demand of me. Somehow I manage another clumsy curtsy and back away to a chair by the door. Our refreshment and polite conversation is past. My lord points out to his guest after I settle. What have you come to see me about, Raiden? You received my message, I presume. His voice is low and rough, his accent strange to me. It makes all the hairs on my body stand on end, but I listen to it anyway. I did. Then you know that what I have to say is of utmost secrecy. There was a slight pause from my lord. Must she leave? The same hopeful question had crossed my own mind. I care not about a single serving girl. She won't have the opportunity to speak with those concerned, as you will. The suggestion in this last statement is obvious. My lord hesitates in raising his glass to his lips. You have my word. I believe I do. I can tell by the dark tone in the guest's voice that I don't understand the full meaning of his words. My lord still has not taken a drink from his raised goblet. I wonder then, he began cautiously, what benefit I have in hearing you. You will benefit nothing save what you already have, my lord Dranwith. My hands, folded on my lap, grip each other tightly. I admit to myself that, despite everything, the guest and his secret have me intrigued. Even more so because I'm slowly realizing that my lord is afraid of this man. And now I don't feel so foolish. I am listening. My lord straightens and finally takes his sip of wine. His guest finally picks up his own goblet. The movement draws my attention, and I catch a glimpse of his profile before I snap my gaze to the cracks of the floorboards under my feet. I had not taken a good enough look to recall what I had seen on the man's face, and I am grateful for it. Two goblets are placed back on the table, and the guest, Raiden of an unknown title, finally reveals his business. Okrin, the Black Eagle, has come to the Southern Vale. My lord is silent as I wonder what in the world that means. Such a strong ally. He finally half whispers. What interest can he possibly share in our cause? The same as my own. Comes the very matter-of-fact reply. There are few who know of our sect, and those who do know know more than you. That is why his coming is to remain a secret. How did you manage to enlist him? Oh no, my lord. It was not my doing. He comes on his own accord. I'm afraid I do not understand. I can see that you do not. Your king is of little use to us, and therefore quite dispensable. An uprising in your city may be the chaos we need to restore balance to our own system of power. An uprising? Does this mean my lord is involved in a movement against the king? And this guest is one of an organization even more secret and obviously more powerful than the rebellion. We will continue to lend you our strength as far as we can afford to. The guest continues before I can work out just what I'm overhearing. I will continue using the pseudonym Falfar. Likewise, Okrin tends to call himself Riddit, an interested warrior and ambassador from Bandebay, hoping to gain freedom for his colony. The others I will continue to keep secret from you, as even I do not know them all. The Black Eagle, however, 
you must know upon sight. Out of the corner of my eye, I think I see a flash of lightning beyond the window. A moment later, the distant rumble of thunder confirms a coming storm. I twist my fingers together as I listen to the conversation and wonder why it is that Raiden allows me to. I could easily gossip at the market of this news when I should not even know the name or why it is important. I thank you for entrusting me with this news. My lord says, interrupting my thoughts. Sit. He sits, but I know he won't stay sitting. His wailing seems to be reaching a climax. Good, then soon he'll stop. Drink! He cries. I'm getting you one! I know my harsh tone is only adding to his hysterics, but I can't control myself. That man has my nerves taut. My heart and my stomach must be battling for territory in my chest the way they're twisting and clenching. What could my lord have been thinking letting him in here? Even Gerud sensed something wrong. His eyes. Can't he see those eyes? I grab the water pail from its nook in the wall and make for the door. Going out in this storm in the night is insanity, but frankly I don't care right now. Really I think the rain might soothe me, douse the crazed fire within. Heaving in a breath with this comforting thought and blocking Gerud screaming from my ears, I throw open the door and step out into the dark storm. A flash of lightning and my eyes absorb a sight that nearly has me toppling back inside with fright. Another man stands across the alley, leaning, arms crossed, against the wall of the next building. His hair had been silver in the lightning, wet and climbing down his face like ivy. His ears are decorated with gold rings and chains, his smile is wide, and his eyes, worse than the others. These are the color of ice, and they have me frozen. The lightning gone, he is no more than a silver shadow, glowing in what feeble light escapes from the kitchen through the doorway, but I can hear his soft footfalls moving toward me. I scramble within my mind for my senses, but all I can think about is the distance that is closing steadily between myself and this man, a thief, a rapist, an accomplice of my lord's terrifying guest or perhaps completely harmless. It doesn't matter. I have gone insane. Something latches onto my hand. I yelp, sure that this man-creature is in some way responsible, though he is still a few paces away. Then I realize that it is Gerud's small hand, and that he has stopped screaming. Suddenly, I find my tongue. Get inside, I manage, and my leaden feet move backwards. Dropping the bucket, I search for the door, my eyes still fixed on the man's dark form in front of me. Another bolt of lightning, I see him reaching for Gerud. Adrenaline races through my nerves, and I yank Gerud's arm with more strength than I knew I had, but certainly as much as I had intended. Gerud loses his footing and crumples to the ground, still silent. He is as beyond screaming as I am. I grope for the door, my fingers sloppy in their rush to close it before the man is upon us. Too sloppy. He is in the door frame, washed in the weak orange light of the hearth, 
picking up Jerude by the shoulder. The little boy's eyes are bulging from his sockets. All those sleepless nights waiting on him, the tantrums and the pestering. I see him now as an innocent child who is about to be killed by a monster. Helplessly, I reach for him, hook him around the waist with my arm as though I could pull him away. I see the man's grip tighten on his shoulder, hear the crunch of bone, then feel the child slide from grasp as he is thrown across the room. All of my strength drains. My legs give way, but the man catches me under my arms. Bile rises in my throat. I can see Giroud's limp form, a small pile of limbs by the hearth. The kitchen door slams open with my lord's guest in the frame. His eyes are wild with hatred. He tosses something, a dagger it seems, at the man who holds me. Only now do I scream. But even over my own screaming and the shouts of angry men in the hall, I hear my captor screech, a terrible sound no man should be able to make. His lips, pulled back in pain, reveal deadly sharp teeth. I feel the rush of air behind us and we're moving backwards. A sound like wings beating and we're floating in the air, rising above the street. And finally my mind breaks. Piece of Something was written by S. von Glaubitz. You can find more of her writing at writerscafe.org under her profile. Check the show notes for the link. Narrator and Nimri are voiced by Jesse Lynn, and her website that you can find more of the work that she does is www.jolin.com. Lord Dranwith was played by John Skaggs. John is a broadcaster and sometimes voice artist. He can be reached at thedrylandfish at gmail.com. Raiden was played by Chris Thompson. You can find more of the podcast he is a part of at blockpartypodcastnetwork.com. Links to sound effects and music are in the show notes on our website. And now, on to our second story. A Path to Freedom by Louisa Ukiel. I woke up with a jolt and sat up. Unaware of my surroundings, I surveyed the room. I couldn't seem to remember how or why I got there. All my memories, gone. My eyes settled on a wall, except it wasn't a wall. It was a mirror. In the reflection, I saw a ghost of what the girl staring sullenly back at me might have been. Skin stretched over bones, seeming too sharp. Eyes as dark as coals, seemingly glazed over. Hair, a messy gold halo surrounding sharp cheekbones and a round chin. Arms impossibly small and joints too big. Knees bigger than the width of my thighs. Turning away from the mirror, unable to look at my reflection any longer, I attempted to stand and put my foot down onto the mercilessly stone-cold floor and stood. Standing on its own, I discovered, as soon as I found out I was unable to do so without leaning onto the bed, proved to be a challenge. In the room stood a single, stainless steel table with nothing on it but an empty tray lined with a thin sheet of paper with nothing written on it. I laid my eyes on the door which was on the opposite side of the room and was filled with a fiery determination to leave this horrible place with its whitewashed walls. 
Launching myself from the bed to the wall with the intention of using it as support was a mistake. Too weak to even make it the whole way across, I crumpled onto the ground halfway between the bed and the wall. Just a reminder, patients, there is nowhere for you to run. You may as well sit back, relax, and enjoy. Having no intention of giving up, I felt a spark budding deep in my chest and a film of sweat from all my efforts. Painstakingly, I made my way to the door, using the wall as support. Eventually, I reached the door and pushed its handle, and it popped open. I peeked into the hall, which was eerily quiet and empty. I didn't care or notice. All that was on my mind was the fact that I needed to leave, and the spark in my chest grew. I hadn't any idea where to go, so I just went where my feet took me. Forward. After what seemed like hours walking in the hallway, I was met with another door. Except this one looked heavy and was made of metal. I pushed the metal handle, but the door didn't budge, so leaning my forehead on the door, I focused on breathing in and out, trying to push away the frustration of rising so close to the edge of overpowering me. Then I started again, going back the way I came from and passed by my room once again and peeked inside. Fear gripped my heart, and I tried to heighten my pace and get away from the room where my memories of this world had started. As I crept further away from the room, the number of doors identical to mine began appearing and growing in number. I didn't dare look inside the doors in fear of what I might find. Seeing myself in the mirror that took up a whole wall in the room was enough. I didn't feel like having to bear witness someone else in the same state as I was in. That's when I heard them, the voices, coming from further down the hall. Stricken with panic, I didn't know what to do. Frantically looking around, I didn't dare seek refuge in one of the rooms, but as the voices drew closer, I felt I had no choice. I entered a room and was plunged into darkness. Relief flooded me and I waited for the voices to pass. Anyone caught trying to escape the facility will be subjected to even more testing. So please, try and run. Waiting a few minutes after the voices had passed to make sure they were gone, I opened the door a sliver and light flooded into the room. Turning back, I saw what I had been trying to avoid the most. On a bed lying there was a young boy, no older than seven years old, with tubes piercing his flesh in more areas than I cared to look for. And just like in my room, there was a mirror taking up a whole wall. The boy flashed open his eyes and looked straight at me, giving me a blank stare. Nothing less, nothing more. I backed out of the room wanting to leave the inhumane look I was receiving. I clicked the door shut behind me and continued my trek down the hall. I reached a glass door that led onto a terrace holding a few tables and had brown wilted grass. There was no other doors except the doors to the rooms holding horrors such as myself. I walked into the terrace and immediately the air burned my lungs. I powered on to a balcony I spotted and looked out onto the horizon. Looking out into what the world had become, I made a choice. Not wanting any part of it, I climbed up on the balcony ledge as the setting sun lit my golden halo of hair into a fiery red. The terrace door clicked open and I glanced behind me. The young boy stood there, giving me the same blank stare with his icy blue eyes while blood seeped out of the places he had ripped out the tubes and bloomed onto his white nightgown. 
I turned back around and closed my eyes. Willing myself to calm down, I stood there breathing in the burning air, then stepped down from the balcony ledge. I made my decision. Fear and doubt, I decided, had no place in me at that moment. It's time to go. I walked to the boy and took his hand as he gazed at me with curiosity. The first hint of emotions I had seen blossom from his face. I pushed open the door and stepped back into the white hallway. A Path to Freedom was written by Louisa Ukiel. You can find more of her work at writerscafe.org. The link to her profile is in our show notes. Narrator for the story was Alyssa Thompson. You can find her music at soundcloud.com slash Alyssa Thompson and find her writings at alyssalin.wordpress.com. Music, sound effects, and links can be found in our show notes. that's our episode for you we hope that you have enjoyed both the story of nimri and her mysterious guest in the back alley and the strange hospital visit with the creepy little boy we would like to invite you back to join us in two weeks for two brand new stories in our first ever science fiction anthology trust me you will want to hear these and hopefully they will inspire you in whatever creative avenue you find yourself a part of if you would like to get in contact with us and tell us how you were inspired from this episode Head over to your email and type in storyarcpodcast at gmail.com, followed by your story. We would honestly love to hear them. And you can also check us out on Twitter, at storyarcpodcast, and also on Facebook. Want to be a part of the action? Head to our website at blockpartypodcastnetwork.com and submit your own story under our submissions page. We would love to hear them. And once again, we hope that you spread the word. Our goal here is to inspire as many talented listeners as possible, and only you can make that happen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we will see you right back here again in two weeks. And as always, keep being inspired.